0: Okay, let's take out our Bibles. We're going to open to the book of James. In verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, I remember when I was in, uh, oh, about the sixth grade, uh, uh, a guy moved from North Dakota over to just across the street from us. And we quickly became friends. We were the same age, the same grade. He was a fun guy to hang around with. He was involved in rodeo and, and those kind of things. I found it interesting, all the things that he had participated in and thought it was pretty cool, kind of some bragging rights kind of stuff, right? And when school started up, I had told a couple people, they'd asked about him who's the new kid and I said told him who he was and, and yeah, he's got to do some pretty cool things. He can rope and ride and all that kind of stuff and we'd always ride the bus together. Sit in the same seat on the bus every day and we'd ride the bus back and forth and walk home together and stuff like that. And all of a sudden one day I went to get on the bus after school. I walked back to the bus and he looks up and he says, Oh, you want to sit here? and he got up and left, went and sat in another seat and I was like, What's that all about? Got off the bus and went to walk home. We always, like I said, walked and talked on our way home and stuff. Goofed around through rocks and that. And he just kind of had nothing to do with me. and I, So later, I went up to him and I said, Hey, what's going on? He said, I don't like people talking about me. And I said, talking about you? What do you mean? I haven't talked about you. Because to me, talking about you meant if somebody said I don't like people talking about me means criticizing them, right? Com- complaining or sharing something negative. I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well... Those people over there know that I was in a rodeo and stuff like that, and the only person that knew that was you. And I was like, that's a secret? I was like, man, if I was in a rodeo, I'd tell everybody. That was cool. I said, I thought that was kind of bragging, not complaining about you. What's the secret in that? But at any rate, the point is, I learned that he was a pretty private person and not to go sharing his business. And so, you know what? I told him, I said, you know what? I'm sorry. I thought those were pretty cool things, and I couldn't see why it would be a problem at all. But you know what? It's your business. And so, uh, I apologize for sharing that with other people. And And he accepted my apology and we went back to being friends, having a good time. But I was actually glad for the opportunity to fix it. Well, the reason I bring that little story up is because it kind of illustrates what's going on here. If you remember from last week, we're we're kind of in the middle of a passage, but there was so much content in the passage that we had to break it in half. So it's, it's like we're coming in in the middle of a conversation, as we often are within Scripture. Remember, all the way back into chapter 3, he talked about a a heavenly wisdom and an earthly wisdom. And he says, don't go getting the two mixed up. Don't go thinking you're operating on a heavenly or a spiritual plane when you're actually being very carnal. Then he went in to describe that more in in chapter 4. And he talked about the, the fightings and the quarrelings. Remember, the wars and the battles that were happening between people. And he says, when do things like that happen? They happen... When you have desires, passions—remember that word that we get our word hedonism from—where you're trying to pursue your pleasures, but somebody's getting in your way, and so then it causes a a frustration on your part, and you end up in involved in conflicts with one another. The final conclusion of that that he's just starting to go into in verses seven through ten is the remedy for that. The remedy for us being stuck in our passions and trying to live a self-seeking life a self-centered life, and that drawing us into conflict with other people, the remedy for that is, in this one word, he says, grace. God gives more grace. God gives this abundant grace. And so grace is the answer. Now, grace is going to unfold into humility. The grace of God impacting your life is going to express itself in humility, being able to put Other people first instead of yourself. Being able to seek the welfare of other people instead of just being self-centered. Grace has a big impact in our life. In this passage in verse 6, it says, "...but He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." But you know what? Grace is something that we often focus on. But oftentimes when we're focusing on it, we're focusing on salvation. Because salvation is completely by the grace of God. But grace is not something just that you're saved by. It's also something that you live by. And, and that's really kind of the theme of this passage as it unfolds is this idea of living by grace. If we're stuck in our kind of self-centeredness and because we don't get our way, we become frustrated and then that leads to relational problems and difficulties and even problems within ourselves. God gives His antidote for that is grace. Then the, really the goal is to live out that life of grace. And If you notice from that verse, he says he gives more grace. And then he says, therefore, it says, in other words, how does that grace unfold? By humbling ourselves. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So humility and God's work of grace in our life are very closely connected. It's that grace, God's act of grace within our lives that gives us the power to live a godly life in an ungodly world. In fact, Titus in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the part we were just discussing. The grace of God is what brings us the salvation. God's unmerited favor. But then he goes on and he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so he says, look, the grace of God comes into our life and it does what? It brings salvation to us. It's not something we earn or achieve, it's just a gift of God. It brings that salvation. It says, but the grace doesn't stop there. Grace goes on to train us. Train us to live a godly life in an ungodly world. And so it continues to be powerful. The point is this, the grace of God is not just forgiving you of your sin and then leaving you stuck in bondage to it. The grace of God both forgives you for your sin and then goes to work delivering you out from under its bondage. It does not leave you stuck in the sin that you've just been forgiven for. He begins to help you to get victory over those things in your life. Titus chapter 3 in verses 4 through 8, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, focusing on that same thing that we're saved by God's grace, by God's mercy, not by our own works of righteousness. It is just a gift. But then he goes on and he says about that Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So notice, he says, look, as the grace of God and the mercy of God comes into our life, the first thing it does is provide salvation. But then it instantly goes to work, giving us the power and the motivation to live out that grace of God, to live out that mercy of God within the bounds of good works. Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 8 and 9, say, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your salvation is not based on your works at all. It's only the free gift of God that came through Jesus Christ. But then notice the conclusion of that for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But the point is, the grace of God doesn't just provide you salvation. It provides you a salvation that really saves. When you look at the word salvation in the Bible, it's usually and used in kind of three ways. It talks about our being saved from the penalty of sin. And that's the one that we usually think about right up front, because that's on our mind when we come to Christ. When we get saved from the penalty of sin, that we're forgiven for that, that we're not headed for hell anymore. Now we're headed for heaven. And we're part of God's family now. And so we've been delivered from that sin. We're we're delivered from the penalty of sin in our life. But then the Bible also uses the word salvation or being saved as being saved on an ongoing basis. On a day-to-day basis. And what that's referring to is not being saved from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in our life. And that is day by day, God sanctifies us, He draws us closer to Himself, sets us apart for Himself, and we become a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger, and sin gets less and less of a grip on our life, less and less of a hold in our life as we grow in faith in Christ. So we're being saved from the penalty of sin at the moment we come to Christ. We get put on a path of getting saved more and more from the power of sin, and then Finally, when we enter Christ's presence, we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. The salvation covers all those avenues, but you know what? Grace brings all of those avenues. And so as we consider this idea of grace and living in grace, there's five evidences of God's grace in our life as we unfold this passage. The first evidence that we see is commitment. Commitment. The grace of God will lead to commitment in your life. You will yield yourself more and more to God and less and less to the ways of the world and to the ways of Satan. In verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Bible tells us that there's three sources of temptation in our life. The world, the flesh, and the devil. James is actually dealing with all three of them. He talks about our relationship in the world in the passage we dealt with last week. He talks about that being us needing to resist Satan in this. And in the passage we dealt with last week, he also talked about the, the desires that are within us. So that's our flesh. And so all three of those things he's dealing with. And he's saying, look, as God distributes more grace into your life, one thing that's going to look like is it's going to look like commitment. And what is that commitment? Submitting yourself to God. And you know, that's, that's really a great word for it, isn't it? For us to draw near to God, what does that mean? It means that we, we submit. Right? He's he's God. We don't have any bargaining chips here. When we come before God, it's like He's God, He's the Creator, He's the one who made me, so He knows what my life ought to be like. He's the one who loves me, so He wants that to be that way. And and so really what is my role in this? My role is just to just to submit. You know what I find, and I'm sure you find too, that in your Christian life, ever since you first put your faith in Christ, well, probably the best way to describe that is an ongoing series of submissions where you realize that, you know what, God, I'm doing things this way. God actually tells me I should do them this way. You know what, God, you're right. I'm, I'm going to submit. I'm sorry. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The other side of that is resist. So there's a positive and a negative. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. You know, you can't have it both ways. Kind of as he was pointing out in the earlier part of this passage, it was you cannot have the world and God at the same time. And you completely understand this. Just apply it to something that's familiar in your life. Apply it to like your marriage relationship. Is it okay, husbands, if your wife has you and him? Is it okay, wives, if your husband has you and her? Somebody else? Absolutely not. Well, that's the same thing God's doing. He's, he's saying, look, you can't, have, you can't have God and the devil. You can't have God and the world. You can't have God and your own hedonistic fleshly desires. There has to be a separation there. There has to be a commitment there. To commit to God is, is a commitment against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a complete contradiction to try to go both ways at one time. It's like Psalm one says. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2 goes on, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law he meditates day and night. If you're going to be that man, you need to be that person that doesn't walk in the ways of the world, that does walk in the ways of God. That commitment is also seen in another verse down in verse 8. It says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You, he refers to them as double-minded. People that are kind of vacillating back and forth. In fact, earlier in the book of James, when he talked about how wisdom was available for them for every struggle that they would go to, from they could get wisdom from God. He refers to them as double-minded back there too. He says, "For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." And he compared him to somebody that's being tossed by the wind. And you know, that's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for, "I'll do this, but I won't do this." I'll follow you today, but not today. I'll worship you on Sunday, but I'm not going to live for you through Monday through Saturday. What God is doing as He pours His grace out into our life, that looks a lot like commitment. Submitting to God. Resisting the devil. And it's encouraging that He does give us A little hint here about how that works. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. As I like Jim's always pointing out, he says you're always as close to God as you are willing to be. Because God says He'll draw near back if you draw near to Him. But He says if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. It's the example that we saw with Christ When Christ was tempted, He was tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights out into the wilderness after His baptism. And we get to see a record of three of those temptations. And what does it say in the very end? It says, then the devil left Him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to Him. So you see Jesus resisting the devil, resisting the devil, resisting the devil, and what happens? The devil leaves. I remember thinking years ago, every time I feel tempted to do something, I'm going to stop and think about Scripture. And you know what? I will guarantee you this. If every time Satan brings a temptation to you, it results in you meditating on the Word of God, he's going to think that's not such a good tactic. Whatever he's trying to tripping you up with, if you let that drive you to God instead of pulling you away, he will stop it. And that's exactly what James is telling us here. He says, look, there's a commitment that has to be made here. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You can't be God-centered and other-centered and self-centered at the same time. Grace, as it unfolds in our life, looks an awful lot like commitment. Not only does it look like commitment, it also looks like a, there's a closeness there. There's a closeness. Because notice what he says in verse, verse 8. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. I love that. In, in adult Sunday school, we were talking about prayer this morning. What is the purpose of prayer? Well, there's, there's many purposes of prayer. But one of them that just kind of tends to kind of summarize it all was there was a phrase that came up. I think Leah was one that said it. She said, you know what? The purpose of prayer is to draw near. It's to draw near to God. That's exactly right. That's what James says. Look, as God pours His grace out into your life and you humbly submit to Him, you're going to experience a closeness. You're going to draw near to God. We're invited to come to God. And, and God is pleased when we come before Him in prayer. It's like a sweet-smelling aroma that goes up before Him. The Bible says He just enjoys that. And that's the whole point of Christ even, is to draw us near to God. There's a closeness, which is an evidence of the grace of God within our lives. And also, there's a cleansing. In verse 8, in the last part of it, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, we looked at that a little bit last week, kind of looking forward, and we and we recognize that calling them sinners, that's not something that happens much in, in Scripture. We're called sinners before we come to Christ. That's what we are. After that, anybody remember what we are? After we come to Christ, We are we are saints. That's right, we're saints. We're the sanctified. We're the set apart for God. But... People are acting like sinners. It has led some to conclude that he's talking to just two people that are unsaved within the passage. Actually, I think he's talking to the whole group. And I think that uh, some of them are saved, but acting like sinners like we talked about last time. I have no doubt that probably within the group you're going to have a person or two that maybe has not legitimately come to faith in Christ. But the point is, he says, look, if you're living like a sinner, you know what you need to do? You need to look a lot more like a saint. You need to be cleansed. We receive a cleansing at salvation. We're clean before God and we're accepted before God. But God has also giving us, given us an ongoing method of cleansing through our repentance and confession. First John 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, He is faithful to, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we continually come back to God and say, God, I, I blew it here or I, I did this wrong or I should have done that. And, and we'll, every time we do that, we agree together with God, God cleanses us. He forgives us and he cleanses us. And that's what in James he's, he's telling him. He says, Look, you guys need to cleanse yourself. You need to, be, you need to be purified. Christ purified you. He cleansed you, but it's like you're wallowing in the mud of the world again, and, and you need to shake some of that off. All of it, actually. And then he also has it kind of in categories because first he talks about cleansing your hands. Hands would be activity, right? Things that you do. Our hands are, are a symbol of the things that we do, the things that we accomplish. And he says, you need to cleanse your hands. But then he also goes on from there, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You see, this is more complete than just the things that we do with our hands. But what are we on the inside? In fact, he adds to that by calling us double-minded. So we need to cleanse our hearts, cleanse our minds. It's who we are on the inside. You know, that's the struggle that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of of the day. He said, you know what, you guys are so good at cleaning the outside of the cup, but the part that you're actually drinking on the inside is corrupt. He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. They would whitewash their graves because if you came in contact with a grave, it would make you ceremonially unclean. So if you're walking down a, a road or a path at night... Uh, they don't want you to kind of get too close to a grave on accident. So they'd whitewash the outsides of them to warn you, stay away from this. It'll make you unclean. Jesus said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're all white and clean looking on the outside, but inside, dead man's bones. There's death in there. James is just saying, look, we need cleansing. And you know where we need it? We need our hands clean, the things that we do. We need our minds clean, the things that we think. We need our hearts clean because that's who we are. You know, in Psalm Chapter 24, verses 3-5. through He says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. You see, that's how grace works in our life. The psalmist can ask the question, who gets to stand before God? Who will be in His presence? Those with a clean hands and a clean heart. Why? Because that is evidence of the grace of God being alive and active within you. Well, fourthly, we see that contrition is also an evidence of the grace of God in your life. He he goes on to say in verse nine, he says, "Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom." Now, this isn't kind of one of those places where you say, "You know what? I want to write that verse down for the day and think about it for a while." I've never heard anybody give this as this is my life verse right? We like the other end of things. We like to turn the gloom to joy. Let's let's get the celebration started. Let's get the happiness flowing. That's what we want. You know what? God wants that too. But you know what? There's a greater happiness that is on the other side of gloom. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. You've had those things in your life that you pursued because you thought it was going to make you happy. But it wasn't the kind of thing that God tells you would make you happy. And so you pursue those things. And when somebody corrects you for it, when somebody comes in alongside you like they're supposed to, like your your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to, and when they come along beside you and say, you know what? You're damaging yourself. You're going in the wrong direction. And they share a Bible verse with you pointing that out. When they do that, your first response is to recoil from it. Why? Because you're infringing upon my happiness. It's, it's like a little kid when you take uh, that chocolate away from them because you need to give them something healthy for them before you can give them chocolate later, right? Grandparents do anyway. And, and you've you got to give them something healthy. They can't live on the chocolate, right? But the, boy, their joy is going away fast. But you know that as you give them something healthy, there's a, there's a greater joy by that than by the chocolate because they're going to grow up to be healthier, stronger, better in a physical way. You can give them a little chocolate here and there, too, but it can't be the main diet. Well, God, when we start going away that we shouldn't, or we something think it's something that's going to lead to our happiness, or even it can even be like the, the illustration I just gave, it can even be a good thing taken to an extreme that takes us away from God, like we talked about a little bit last week. But when we do those, and somebody comes along and says, or, the, or a Bible verse that we read comes along and says, Look, you need to stop doing that, our first is, You know what? That's taken away my happiness. But you also know, because you've been through this just like I have, you also know that if you stop and think about it, and you get that right before God, and you say, God, you know what? You're right. That thing needs to go. But there's a greater joy on the other side of that. But you know what? It comes through the sorrow. And I remember the day that I got saved, I could hardly see straight I was so excited that I'd been forgiven of my sins. I was so excited. Do you know what happened right before I got saved? I was completely terrified. I went to church that morning. It happened to me at church. I went to church that morning thinking, just going to worship God, having a great time, visiting with people. And somewhere at the beginning of the service, all of a sudden it dawned on me that I was not saved and that I was living in rebellion against God. And I was like, no, it can't be. And I wrestled with it. I wrestled with it the whole service. Finally, I submitted right at the end. I went forward and I accepted Christ into my life. And you know what? When I went forward to accept Him, I was like broken I couldn't believe that I was lost. I couldn't believe that I was sinful. I always figured, hey, you know, nobody's perfect, but I'm okay. And I saw the ugliness of my sin and what it looks like to God, and I was just I was sorry. And as soon as I brought that to him, my sorrow turned to joy. There's a greater joy, but it was only on the other side of that sorrow, the other side of that brokenness. That's exactly what he's telling these people is he's saying, Look, you're living in the world, you're living like the world. You need to have your heart broken. For your unfaithfulness to God. You need to mourn. You need to weep. You're going around all excited. The way you're living, you should be on your knees before God. And after you do, you'll experience a joy like you <laughs> have a hard time explaining. You know what? There is a time in our life to put away the laughter and to just be contrite before God. Just to be broken. That contrite heart, He will not, He will not disregard that. And it's through that moment of sorrow that can open up an everlasting joy. Well, then also lastly, is we find commendation. Christianity is such a paradox in so many ways. It talks about we receive by by giving, we live by dying, right? This whole passage is used in the place of grace, the word humble, humble yourself, submit to God, lower yourself. And what is the final outcome? In verse ten, humble yourselves before the Lord and He He will exalt you. He will lift you up. You know in Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight, it talks about the humiliation of Christ. He was in the very presence of God and himself very self being God. And it says that he didn't hold to that, grasp to that, he let it go and became a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became a servant, He humbled Himself further and submitted to death. Even the most horrible, humiliating death, the death on the cross, He humbled Himself and submitted to that. The reason that passage is in there, He's saying, look, live like this. Do this. Do what Christ did. Humble yourself. Have this same mind in you. But then notice the outcome. The final conclusion of that is in verses 9-11. through Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is exactly the pattern that He communicates to us. Jesus humbled Himself and became a servant even unto death and God exalted Him. James is saying follow that example. Humble yourself before God and what will happen? He will lift you up. In our pride, we try to lift ourselves up. We try to pull up ourselves. We try to show how great we are. We seek our own glory. We seek our own reputations. We seek our own. And it's constantly elusive. It's always eluding. us. I've often pointed out looking back at our forefathers as they began this great nation. They talked about us being a place where we could freely exercise a a pursuit of happiness. But you know what is interesting? That if you pursue happiness, you will seldom find it. You see, happiness is not a pursuit. Happiness is a byproduct. When you do what is right, when you do the will of God, you will find that joy. But it's not because you're pursuing joy, it's because you're pursuing God. It's the same problem I had. I remember when the self-esteem movement started to really get a big push, and uh, people were really flocking toward that. And they're going, you know what? We need to. That's what we need to do. We need to get all these little kids, no matter what they ever do, if they they succeed or fail or whatever happens, give them all a trophy, tell them all they're doing great, no matter what happens, no matter so that they have this healthy self-esteem. And I'm like, you know what? That's a wrong goal. I'm 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 glad for a healthy self-esteem. People need to have healthy self esteem but you know what? You don't get a healthy self-esteem by trying to get a good healthy self-esteem. You get a healthy self-esteem by seeing the world correctly and making good decisions. That's what leads to responsibility and a healthy self-esteem. Well, that's what we see in this. If you pursue trying to exalt yourself, lift yourself up, you will never feel like you got what you deserve. But it kind of is what you deserve to not get it. Well, you know what? If you pursue Christ, if you humble yourselves and submit to God, resist the temptations of the devil, the world, and the flesh that tell you to grab everything for yourself, you will find tremendous joy in worshiping God and serving others. And God will exalt you. He will lift you up. And there you will find that everlasting joy. There we find the grace of God accomplishing its task within our lives.